Welcome to the Good Fight Radio Show, a program dedicated to bringing you vital and uncompromised truths that you won't hear in the mainstream media, discussing contemporary issues in light of the Bible and how these issues relate to family, culture, and the church. The heart of this show is to glorify Jesus Christ and expose the works of darkness as he is commanded in Ephesians 5.11. Now here's your host, Good Fight Ministries' own Chad Davidson. Thank you for joining us on this special edition of the Good Fight Radio Show. We are so excited today because on this edition we will have a special guest. But before I get to him, I have to point out that, as always, we have the president and founder of Good Fight Ministries, Pastor Joe Schimmel, alongside with me today. Hey, everything's great. I'm not going to give a long intro. I'm just going to say I can't wait till we're interviewing Gary because we don't want to take much of a space up. We've got the, well, I'm going to let you introduce him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, as uh, Joe was trying to bury the lead, we are so beyond excited because we have somebody who is considered by many the most foremost scholar when it comes to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So I could not be more excited on to welcome planet. on planet Earth. On the planet. Yeah. Could not be more excited than to welcome Dr. Gary Habermas to the Good Fight Radio Show. Welcome, Dr. Habermas. Thank you guys. I am looking forward to a great program and the you know, most of all to uh uh, you know, for ministry's sake and the sake of equipping people to defend their faith. So that's wonderful. Well, God. you know what, Gary, I'm I'm really, really excited. So I think the best way to start off is I think people were probably wondering, you know, how does somebody become the foremost scholar on the resurrection? Why were you studying this? Were you just always, you know, the strong Christian growing up or were there times of doubt or anything? So I really just to leave it more open ended, maybe just tell your testimony a little bit of how you came to this place of where you are now. Sure. Yeah. You know, I, I get asked that a lot. And 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 some people will even say to me, they'll say, um, you know, you no doubt are doing this out of the goodness of your heart, right? Because we know you love ministry and we've heard you say that. And so you must be doing this to help people. And I'll say, well, I wish it started that way, but that's not how it started. Um, I was raised in a, a German Baptist church and I went through a very significant time of very significant doubt. It lasted for 10 years straight. And off and on, seriously, for about another ten or more years. So, and, and these were these were serious times. A lot of people say they were doubters or atheists. And you say, "How old, old were you?" And they go, "Oh, 16. Um, when I was going through my my strongest doubts, um, I had already earned my PhD doing uh, on the resurrection of Jesus. So. That tells you sometimes, it's kind of a hint, that doubt can be overwhelming, and it doesn't have to be factual doubt. It can be, it usually is emotional doubt. So it's a big subject, but man, I, I, the, I ran the gamut of, it, uh, gamut of it, and the resurrection rescued me from it. So I'm forever thankful to the Lord for that. Well, praise the Lord, Gary. That would, uh, maybe I can kind of bring two questions in one, because I'm interested to hear a little bit more of your testimony in regard to... What was it about the resurrection that most convinced you? And then what's the minimal facts approach in sharing the gospel and the resurrection with others? Uh, if you could get into that. Both those questions kind of relate probably to you because you were convinced. Sure. No, you know what? We, For the sake of the audience, we didn't rehearse this at all. But those two questions run into each other very, very nicely for this reason. I still remember the, the evening. I was in graduate school. 
and I was seated in my favorite easy chair in my living room, and I was going through, I was studying the resurrection at the grad level, not evangelical school, and I started having these doubts about a theory or two, a naturalistic theory or two. And so I sat there in the chair with a clipboard and a, and a uh, pen, and I thought, all right, my skeptical professors are not going to grant this, 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 and this. And here's my favorite book. Yep, they won't allow that. Uh, no, they won't allow this. What will they allow? And I made a list of data that they think were the best established data in the New Testament. And then I said to myself, can I refute this theory with only their minimal data? And I still have the set of notes. I still have the page where I said, okay, I would like to use this, but I can't. I'd like to use this, but I can't. But I'll use this, 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 and this. And I made a long string of problems for this one theory. And then I flipped it over in the back of the page, and I wrote there, for more skeptical theories yet, all I've got to do is reduce this list, and I will still have enough to refute the theory. And that was the beginning of the mm -hmm. minimal facts, which is to take the facts which critics find the best evidence for. That's a key thing. It, the facts are supported by the best evidence. And because of that, virtually everybody uh, accepts these facts. Uh, okay, what good are they? And my point is you can show the resurrection happened with those half dozen facts alone, which the critics allow. And let me just say, they're not true because the critics allow them. They're true because of the reason the critics allow them, and that is because there are multiple evidences on behalf of each one of the facts. That's why people don't contest them. You know, I, I think uh, one of the great things maybe we could do a little bit is talk a little bit about Paul, because I know Paul is somebody, when we look at not only the New Testament, but you even said critical scholars, there, there seems to be an acceptance when it comes to Paul. Now, maybe you could tell us why that is, and is that true even, I guess? Yeah, Paul is the critic's darling. Uh, they will take Paul over the Gospels any day of the week. Now, they don't take Paul the way evangelicals take Paul. Uh, there's 13 books that bear Paul's name in the New Testament. They will let you use seven of them. And the seven they use, let you use, are the best-known texts. Uh, if a pastor was preaching his way through Pauline theology— he would want these books, and they will allow, I'll give a list of the seven, but these seven, when I say they allow them, they don't think they're inspired. Of course not. These guys aren't going to believe in inspiration. They don't think that the books are inspired, but they think that Paul is authoritative in this sense. The guy basically had a PhD in Old Testament. He studied under the chief Jewish scholar at that time, Gamaliel. Um, he was zealous for the law, as he says himself in more than one epistle. And he was gung-ho for getting Christians out of the way because they were messing with the truth of Judaism. So they think that what Paul said, he, he knows the people, he interviewed them, uh, he's smart, he, he may be wrong, they would say, but he won't lie. He's very honest. And the seven books they give you are Romans, 
First and Second Corinthians, Galatians, Philippians, First Thessalonians, and um, you know, now right there, that should be the six major ones. And then Philemon, the little one chapter book, those are the seven they grant. So Romans, first Second Corinthians, Galatians, Philippians, First Thessalonians, and Philemon. Perfect. Now, since those are the books that were given by the critics, and I love this because we're talking about specifically with Dr. Gary Habermas about this this theory, and not just this theory, but a way of approaching this minimalist facts approach using, I would say, something that like maybe a boxer would use if he went against, even with their own, whatever they're best at, the guy he's going against, and still saying, I'm going to take your best, and I'm going to bring it right forward, right after you, and I'm not going to step back. And you use this approach, and maybe give us a short-end version of how this approach would work. Can you prove the resurrection through those specific letters that are given to you by the critics? Yeah, I'll give a list of six facts here, and I throw a seventh one in, so I frequently call these six plus one. The yeah. sixth are the minimal facts, but the seventh one, which I'll say in a minute, is just as well evidenced. It's just not as well recognized by critics. The first six are going to be granted by probably 90-something percent of critics. And the first six I would use are Jesus died by crucifixion. Now, that doesn't prove the resurrection, of course, but if he's not dead, then he didn't rise. So Jesus died by crucifixion. Number two, the disciples had real experiences that they believed were appearances of the risen Jesus. A shorter way to say that is, they thought they really saw Jesus. Okay, thirdly, these events, and this is the one that's got the most evidence lately. This is the one that's gotten the most attention. These experiences of the disciples were reported very, very early. Now, when I say very, very early, I don't mean the Gospel of John 65 years later. I don't mean reported in Mark uh, 40 years later. I don't mean reported in 1 Thessalonians, probably Paul's earliest epistle, at plus 20. I mean, critics think these early creeds, these early snippets in the New Testament predate the New Testament, and they are actually, they actually are preached within days, weeks, or a very short time after the events, uh, maybe a year at the most. So, they were very, very early. Four, they turned the world upside down because of these. They were willing to die for their faith. And someone says, well, how do you know they were willing to die for their faith? You can't read their minds. Well, I don't read their minds. I watch their feet. When you keep going in the same place where you've been beaten up or the same geographical reason where you were thrown out of town or stoned or something as Paul was regularly, Paul gives a list of all the things that happened. And he keeps going back to those places. Guess what? He thinks his message is more important than what might happen to him. So he was very zealous for that message. And that's the that's the net last two points, five and six. Two skeptics become believers when they think they met the risen Jesus. And those are James, the brother of Jesus, and Paul. So I would use the crucifixion, the disciples' belief they saw Jesus, that was proclaimed very early. It transformed their lives. You got two skeptics, Paul and James. Now, the last one I add, six plus one, the empty tomb has as many evidences as the first six, but it's only accepted by about 70 or 75% of scholars writing today. 
uh, whereas the other facts are accepted by about 95. So I call that six plus one because I put the emphasis on where the data are, not how many scholars accept it. Very good. That was, that was very awesome. Uh, maybe you could now, I was going to ask you a few about a few of the different theories, you know. Uh, we just covered a bunch of them in a, in, in a service recently because of Resurrection Sunday. Uh, but I thought, you know what, instead of pick, handpicking certain theories I want you to talk about, I'd rather leave it in your ballpark, Dr. Habermas. I want, to, I, want to, I want you to take the most, what critics would say, not what you would say, but what critics would say would be the best evidence against the resurrection and then have you refute it. Then I want you to take the worst example that they try to use and then I want to hear you refute that because I'm, I'm, I'm kind of want to laugh a little bit this, during the show. Uh, one of the theories I looked at recently, which I'd never seen before, and I've studied the resurrection a bit, not like you, of course, uh, but man, it's, it was just the view that was written by a professing Christian that Jesus' body abruptly de- dematerialized, and it was miraculous dematerialized. His spirit, the, the vapors escaped through the, the cave and so forth that he was buried in, and then he appeared to people as a spirit, but not as flesh and bone. And I thought, man, the things they'll try to come up with to get out of the resurrection are so incredulous. So if you could say, say what's their best shot and what's their most laughable shot? All right, let, let me make a, make, make a third comment. I'll do the first two. But let me first make a comment. The view you just gave, that the body vaporized and Jesus became, Jesus appeared as a spirit, not as a resurrected body. Okay, that is not a New Testament view. But it is a resurrection view. So if the, if the best they could say is the body vaporized and then he appeared as a spirit, guess what? The key is he appeared as a spirit. So you have a resurrection. So on this view, the only thing you're screaming about is whether there's a body there. Yeah, which Paul would have a hard time with. <laughs> yeah, well, it, because the spirit can appear and do things evidentially too, right? I mean, what if a spirit was seen by 12 disciples at one time? What if the spirit did pick up a piece of uh, food? What if the spirit picked up an object? You could, They would all agree that this person was walking around without a body. So that's still a resurrection view. Okay, the most common thing, this will surprise you. I, I published an article 20-something years ago where I argued that there was a brief uh, increase in naturalistic theories against the resurrection. 20 years later, there's been a sharp decrease in theories. And today, I'm talking now, this whole broadcast, I'm talking about knowledgeable critics, not people who live in their parents' basement, who haven't gotten degrees, who think they're scholars, <laughs> they read things, they talk to their buddies, and when they say, everybody says, it's, um, you know, th- them and their, you know, two buddies. Um, I'm talking about people with accredited degrees and, and scholarship, terminal degrees, if possible, doctorate, in a relevant field, like classics, history, philosophy, New Testament, and so on. Okay, today, they almost never pick theories because the facts, I would like to think that the minimal facts are certainly certainly among those, but the facts that they allow, they refute their theories. So they've got to go somewhere else. So here's the most common response. I don't need a theory. Any theory is good because you believe in the supernatural. Anyone's good because Jesus didn't rise. Notice what's happening. They're not saying like they used to say so much, 
not the tight, not the really major scholars. Some of the older ones are, but the young up and comers, they're not sitting around so much going hallucination. Um, they certainly would never say the disciples stole the body. Um, so today they just go, oh, I'll take, take any of them. They're all better in the resurrection. That's because they don't want to pick one. That's a key. I had one guy tell me in a debate, an atheist, he told me, I said, well, you're an atheist, right? I sure am. Then pick a naturalistic theory. Don't want to. Why not? Because I'll pick one and you'll give a bunch of facts and you're going to get me on the run. And I don't like that. I said, well, wait a minute. I'm a supernaturalist. I believe the resurrection happened. I said, you're an atheist. You don't believe it happened. I'll tell you what happened. He was raised from the dead. Now you tell me what happened on your view. He wouldn't do it. He wouldn't pick a view. He didn't want to be put in the corner. So um, that's what happens. So they say, they'll say there's no other world. You have a supernatural theory. There's no supernatural. Anything's better than resurrection. And that's often the point where I'll stop and I'll say, you know, time out. And I'll introduce briefly the topic of near-death experiences because if if near-death experiences, there's over 300 evidential ones now that really argue strongly for an afterlife. And if there's an afterlife, you have that other world. And that's the world that we believe Jesus entered on his resurrection. So I think that's the best way. The worst thing I've ever heard, well, <laughs> let's go back to the guy who said I won't pick a theory. I pushed and pushed and pushed. And he goes, all right, all right. The disciples stole the body. And I said, really? I said, nobody's held that theory in, in, of, the, of the strict scholars. Nobody's really actually held that for about 200 years. That doesn't prove it's wrong. But if nobody's held it for 200 years, that tells you there's probably some problems. <laughs> and, and so I, I started naming the problems. And the guy got mad at me. And he, it was funny. He was smoking a pipe. It was in a college classroom. He was smoking a pipe, and there was a sign over all the doors, no smoking. And he was smoking a pipe, and he said, he said, okay, disciples stole the body. I gave a bunch of reasons. And he looked at me, and he said, I knew this was going to happen. He said, as far as I'm concerned, this debate is over. I'm not talking anymore. And he didn't. The debate was over. Very good. Uh uh, speaking of skeptics and atheists, uh, you being perhaps, I believe, the foremost debater for the resurrection, uh, but a former foremost atheist prior to Richard Dawkins and far more scholarly, of course, than Richard Dawkins in debating philosophy and the resurrection and so forth. Uh, but he ceased to become be a skeptic after, I mean, I think for 30 years, Anthony Flew was the most renowned debater against Christians. And uh, you debated him like four times. So can you please share with us because uh, I believe you played a role in his conversion to not Christianity, but he took that first step. We don't know where he's at in the last minutes of his death, before his death, but uh, to theism, or at least a form of deism. Yeah, he went back and forth. At the end, he I called him one day after our second debate, or was it our third debate? And I called him and I said, I heard you become a um, uh, a theist. And he said, yeah, I'm really toying around with this thing. It's really, really difficult. He said, but listen, I'm in the middle of a, I'm public, doing some publishing. I got to get done today. Can you call me in a couple of weeks? So I called him back and he said, he said, yeah, um, you know, I told you before I was an atheist with questions and really questioning. He said, but now I'm pretty sure I've become a theist. 
and he interchanged the words theism and deism, but definitely was a theist. He knew the gospel. Um, he and I talked a fair amount. We hadn't talked for the last maybe few months of his life, and he died. I didn't know he died. And his wife, uh, I used to call, talk to him or his wife, and and he died. And uh, he knew the gospel, so I don't know where he was with the Lord. Did he ever make any? But as far as I know, he never became a Christian. But, of course, that doesn't, I'm not his boss. I'm not his God. So um, I am not, I don't know what happened. But as far as I know, he never became a Christian. He did become a theist. Yeah, Chad has a great follow-up question to you on that in that regard. Yeah, you know, I remember hearing this, and it was something that kind of struck me, and I'm sure it struck you a lot more when it happened, but I heard that there was something that Anthony Flew actually said to you after a debate that uh, might have uh, surprised you even to hear it, <laughs> and, I, and I'd love for you to tell that story. Yeah, that was the second debate, and it was televised on the Inspiration Network, and the debate was over. We had questions from the crowd. <clears throat> and then they called it. It was over. The two of us got up and walked off stage under, out from under the hot lights. And we were walking down the hallway. Strangely enough, with Anthony Flew, we were going down the hallway to have our makeup taken off for the television program. And he turned to me and he said something. And I couldn't believe I heard him say it. So I turned to him and I said, what? And he repeated it. And this was the phrase, quote, he said, like he, like he just realized it. He said, and he was an atheist at that time. He said, I have no evidence for my position. <laughs> and I said, what? And he said, I have no evidence for my position. And I quoted it when I interviewed him in an article that was published years later in a philosophy journal. I, I quoted that um, sentence that he said there. So it was pretty major for him to realize that as a, you know, as the best known atheist, best known philosophical atheist in the world at that time. Yeah, and a kind of a follow-up with that, Gary, is uh, he writes this pretty pretty good-sized book about how he became a believer in God uh, through, like, the DNA evidence. And he just talked about that evidence was so vast now he couldn't deny the existence of God any longer, yet the skeptics, because it seems like they'll do anything they can to disbelieve, they say, well, he must have been senile because he was older when he wrote that book. What's your response to that? Well, I, I knew him. He, he, I knew him pretty well, and uh, he became a theist, if I remember correctly, six years before he died. It wasn't like a deathbed conversion or something. And um, interestingly enough, about a year or two after he became a Christian, Lee Strobel interviewed him. The, the, the interview may still be up on, on um, Lee's website. I don't know. But he went down a list of attributes, and he said, Tony, uh, do you think God is omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent? He affirmed every one of God's, you know, we might call the omnis. He affirmed all of them except omnibenevolent. He, he wouldn't agree to God was all good because the main reason he said he didn't become a Christian was the doctrine of hell, and that bothered him. He was a very moral person in his ethics. He was conservative ethically and conservative politically. He didn't like hell, so he wouldn't agree that God was all good. 
but all the other characteristics of God, all the other omnis, he agreed to. So, and and unlike other people, he didn't say, see, for the years I knew him, he would say, I'm not rejecting God without reason. I'm not rejecting God I priori. And I would say, well, it sounds like it to me. And that's what everybody said about him. And I finally got to meet him. He said, no, I'm not. I'm open. And years later, he came to the Lord. Uh, sorry, not to the Lord. I mean, to, to believe in the Lord, but not, I don't know what he was on Christianity. As far as I know, he wasn't. But he did come to believe in God. And I said, Tony, all these years, you told me you were open and you weren't prejudiced, I pray. And I guess you've proven it to me. And he said, he repeated this, he started repeating this phrase everywhere. He said, I had to go where the evidence leads. Hmm. Wow. You know, one of the things else, you know, uh, on a different subject that I was reading a book and I had no idea that it would have you in it, but it was called Seeking Allah and Finding Jesus, uh, Dr. Nabil Qureshi's biography of coming to Christ. And he tells of a story about David Wood uh, bring his friend David bringing him over, him and his father over to speak with his buddies, Gary Habermas and Michael Icona. And I thought, wow, what a, what a better crew to bring him over to. And when I talked to David Wood about that interaction specifically, he told me that that was really a turning point because he said it was the first time where Nabil, he would always appeal to authority. I know that's really big in Islam. And when it came to Nabil watching his father with you guys not be able to answer some of the questions, he said he grabbed Nabil at the end and said, we have to go. And Nabil drove separately. He's like, I'm supposed to hang out with my friends. He's like, we're leaving. And he took him out because I think he realized he didn't have the evidence. So I thought it might be great to ask you because David didn't have as much intel for me when I talked to him about it. But maybe some of the ways that Islam kind of comes out and says, hey, this is why we don't believe in the resurrection. And maybe some of the answers that you and, and Dr. Lycona came up with uh, to him as well. Well, I don't remember Nabil or his dad. His dad was a real classy guy, by the way, a Navy veteran, U.S. Navy. Um, I don't remember them bringing up any uh, pro-Muslim uh, arguments. They were mostly um, very, very kindly, very politely uh, critiquing Christianity. And so we kept defending that, and we were mostly talking about the resurrection. And yeah, so that was the only time I was ever with Nabil's dad, but I knew Nabil probably for two years when he was a Muslim and uh, just a prince of a guy, and, and not just because he became a Christian. I mean, he was just a really neat guy no matter what. Anybody would like him. He was just like his dad, polite, uh, you know, kind, everything. And uh, well, I remember we were at a debate. It was one of Mike's, it might have been Mike's second debate, and he was debating a, a, maybe the best-known Muslim uh, debater, and I was sitting next to Nabil, and Nabil was um, Muslim at that time, and David was on his other side, and they were best friends. And after it was over, everybody had left, and the four of us, David Wood, Nabil, Mike, Lacona, and me, we were out in the parking lot, and like the place was abandoned. It was a university, but we were alone, and and they were hammering on each other with evidences. 
they weren't really given real evidences. They were just saying names, this, 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 this. Oh, yeah, well, I got this, 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 like that. And David was pushing the Beal. Again, they were best friends. And David said to Nabil, what are you going to do with the resurrection? And Nabil tells the sto story in that book. And he said, David, I've told you before. And Michael Cohen and I are standing there pretty silent. We're just watching them. We were five feet away. And Nabil said, David, we've gone over this. We both got good evidences. The only evidence you have on me is the resurrection of Jesus. I don't have a resurrection. And I turned to Mike just because I knew these, we knew these guys super well. And we just started teasing. And I turned to Mike and I said, boy, Mike, I never thought about what Nabil just said. I wished we had more than the resurrection. Don't you wish we had more than just the resurrection? And Nabil started laughing. And he goes, all right, all right. I know what I said. I said the resurrection was major. And I hadn't heard Dave, David say that that was maybe the beginning of the end of him coming uh, uh, you know, away from his faith and becoming a Christian. I had heard that. But I wouldn't be surprised because that night while they were dialoguing, the Beal just said straight out, we don't have a resurrection. You've been listening to the Good Fight Radio Show brought to you by Good Fight Ministries. If you're blessed by this show and would like to partner with us, please consider visiting our Patreon page at patreon.com slash goodfight. Or you can write to us at P.O. Box 2202, Simi Valley, California, 93062. Or call us toll-free at 1-866-JC-TRUTH. That's 1-866-528-7884. We hope you'll tune in next time on the Good Fight Radio Show.